Tonight, we are honored to host the current mayor of Petaluma, David Glass. He was elected to the office in 2010 for his second term. We've invited him here to learn more about Dave the person, his biography, his personal philosophies, his family, his passions, his interests, his relationship with this town, and more. So we say, welcome to the program, David Glass. Welcome, David Glass. Thank you so much. It's nice to be with both of you. It it is an honor to have you. You are the the first mayor that we have hosted on this program, so uh, a milestone for all of us. Yep. It Tom, um, you and I have talked a lot about this episode in yes, the lead up to it. Absolutely, and uh, we have agreed with uh, to, with David. We're we're going to keep the politics out of it. We're also yeah. going to keep the editing out of it. So we're just what you guys are hearing now is what we do. What we do. And so you and I, in discussing this program, we were thinking a good lead in question would be something yeah. you've long thought about running long for mayor about. in a town like this. You know, growing up in Petaluma, watching my dad and his friends. Uh, meet down at the U.S. bakery every morning and decide how the city would be run back in the 60s. Uh, And in a conversation with my dad one time, I always felt that it was going to be expected that I would be on the city council or some some such thing. And as I grew up, I realized, no, I don't think that would be a good idea. But I I would be happy just hanging out down at the Phoenix Theater instead. And the thing that, the, the very first question, David, that I would love to ask you, because I see you guys doing this. I watched uh, one of my heroes, Helen Putnam, uh, run this town. And I saw the amount of dedication and the amount of time she put into it. Uh, Fred Mattei, also a hero of mine. I watched these guys put so much work into this, and so many others. Uh, um, there were so many great mayors that actually came through here, and all of them were pretty much family friends and an awful lot of fun to watch do their job. And I noticed the one thing. I think every mayor that works in this town puts in at least 40 hours a week doing this and probably much more. Uh, I don't keep score. You don't keep score, but no. boy, as, as I look at it's the... It's a lot, though. <laughs> you bet. You look at what's on the plate of the mayor in a town like this, and you look at it, all the issues that you've got to be on top of. You look at all the people you've got to work with and talk with. You look at the hours. And yes, there's got to be some fun to it. There's got to be some excitement. But I also notice that it gets rather contentious, and it always has. And I've always wondered at the end of the day, what is it that drives somebody to want to be the mayor of Petaluma? Well, first, it's the most fascinating thing that anybody could ever do. I I had my own radio show on KSRO, and we had William Cohen on, who had been a mayor, been a United States senator, been a uh, secretary of defense in the Clinton administration. And he had referenced that being mayor is the most fascinating job in politics because uh, you're at the top of a town's food chain, politically speaking, and people tend to come to you. What is different about Petaluma is that it's the only directly elected mayor in Sonoma County. So the other eight cities in Sonoma County will have the mayor coming from amongst the city council and appointed by the city council themselves. So you've got an automatic camaraderie in the other eight cities. That's not true in Petaluma because the mayor is directly elected. The interesting thing about the job, and we won't talk politics, but just so people understand the structure of it where it's different, people tend to think because they voted for a mayor and they know of the strong mayor system where they directly elect the mayor, such as a Willie Brown in San Francisco or a Gavin Newsom or Ed Lee. And those are strong mayor 
positions with executive authority and essentially have the same checks and balances as the executive branch in the White House would have against the legislature. Here in Petaluma, what we have is a directly elected mayor inside of what's called a weak mayor form of government so that the mayor himself has no more power, per se, than any one vote in the city council. And then the city manager runs the city according to the direction of four votes of the city council. So one of the fascinating things about it philosophically is if you have my experience, a two-term mayor, where you've been elected directly by the people, the public will hold you accountable for values you've represented, but they've also elected other council members that may have a very different value system. And in my case, that's been the case all eight years that have been mayor. So that leads itself a built-in system where the potential for conflict that you reference is going to be there by the nature of the system where you're electing a mayor and electing a council and the mayor has the illusion of power but in fact no more than one vote on the city council yeah one vote and it's uh it's an awful lot of work and i wanted to add that also for it's good work though it's (laughs) It's, good work if you can get it it's good work if you can get it And, and it's a tough job to get it also pays virtually nothing Well, it it pays its own rewards uh, of satisfaction of doing something. When I look at what has happened in this community and I look uh, at the bench that's out in front, the metal benches, the iron benches that are out in front of the Phoenix Theater. Built by the high school kids. Exactly. That's something to advocate for. And that came as a byproduct of Dr. Carl Wong. Uh, uh, He was superintendent of the schools at the time. Absolutely. Dr. Wong was a shop teacher. Now, here you had an alternate curriculum available, but it needed a partner, and that partner turned out to be the city. And the city, when they're going through the theater district with the movie theater downtown, and a partnership formed with uh, Dan Sunia's metal shop class at the high school. And here's a whole curriculum built around this bench program where the benches are in downtown Petaluma. At the time, Tom Richards' architecture class designed the benches. Dan Sunia's metal shop class built the benches. The business classes had a model to market the benches, and it was a whole curriculum of relevancy. And I'll never forget it. These kids come to City Hall asking that the city support the shop program because this is their chance to shine the way the football (laughs) players do on a Friday night. They could shine and learn real-life skills, how to have a trade so when they graduate from high school they're employable it's a great program those benches and those benches benches. built really well really strong and they'll be able to bring their kids here and show their kids one day yes we built this that and that uh, you mentioned the phoenix theater which of course we are in right now and the benches are out in front now this is not your first encounter with the phoenix theater this show tonight we were discussing earlier uh you camped out overnight for tickets to a show that happened about 10 years ago yeah that was a great experience with my daughter i mean how you guys uh were able to book the act that you did uh lizzie mcguire i can't remember her real name uh hillary duff that. thank hillary you duff. yeah but lizzie mcguire to me and my daughter yeah you bet and uh uh, so Julie uh, had the uh, store in the Julie uh, Black Plaza. Absolutely. And Board I Betty's. Uh, yeah, Board, Board Betty's. Yep. And I went in there on whatever night they were going to sell the tickets and, and uh, the following morning. And I asked her, I said, where's the line going to be? And she said, oh, no, Mr. Mayor, I'll sell you tickets right now. And I said, no, you won't, because that First of all, you can't do that. Uh, no, I can't have that get around town that I'm, I'm cutting in front of everybody. <laughs> and I said, I just want to know where the line's going to be. So 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the morning before, the night before they were going to sell them the next morning, I was first in line. And my daughter <laughs> got finished with her school and her Girl Scout stuff. And she came with her Girl Scout troop. And we spent the night, all night. 
And uh, I had helped Julie with advice because that was the height of the Beanie Baby craze. Yes. Remember? And you had to know how you distributed a few items to a lot of people. And so I was, I was going through the uh, protocol with her. And every time I see Julie, she gives me a hug and thanks me oh, for her yeah. <laughs> help on that day. Yeah. How many people ended up being in line overnight? Were oh, you- gosh. Maybe a thousand by the yeah. time of the night. Oh, no kidding. So yeah. it sold out that morning. Huh? Oh, that morning. Oh, yeah. That show went so quick. You know, and that show, um, I, I believe it was offered to me by Andy summers uh uh from a booking agency down in uh los angeles i think it was andy and i gave him three chances to back out andy this is the phoenix theater (laughs) because yeah i know we want to do it there okay andy this is the phoenix theater you're talking about hillary duff yes tom we want to do the show this is the last chance i'm going to give you if you say yes, we're taking this show because we want to do the show. We'll take it. Yeah, I believe her family like lived in the area at the time or something. But that's what we like yeah. here. We like uh, the Phoenix Theater breaking out of what people think that it does and yes. doing things like hosting uh, Hillary Duff and interviewing <laughs> Mayor David Glass. You, um, it was the biggest thing. I mean, to kids that age, kudos. It was wonderful. Kudos yeah. to you. <laughs> so, um, and this is just a conversational one. Do you go to many concerts? Uh, you know, not as many as I wish I could, but I know where I'm going to my next concert. It'll be Dave Cause, who I've never seen. Uh, I saw Kiko Matsui when she was in town. Hadn't seen her before and loved it. Uh, we have yeah. venues where there's nice uh, concerts. I love what Dorian Bartley does with the groups that she has, uh, the local where, musicians. Where does she book through for the un- people who don't know? You know, I don't know. She sends me emails of where she's going, and she's around sporadically, and she has a couple of different groups. One focuses on jazz, and one has kind of a, a country violin theme to it. Uh, she plays the bass, and you know what I do I is... She's doing stuff, I think, even at Aquas, and, and yeah. uh, maybe you'll even catch her now at, uh, I, I hope, uh, Zodiacs, which is just a great new establishment. It's fantastic. Jonesy's sets this thing up. This is just the best venue. Uh, I don't remember Sheldon's last name, but he was my next door neighbor, but he plays jazz on Sunday night. And that is hot New Orleans style jazz, and you have a great dinner. Uh, You know, you don't need to go and see the most famous musicians because we've got the best. They're just not famous. Absolutely. You can go out. Uh, Last night, Monday night, I went down to, there's a new uh, whiskey bar in town. I can't remember what the name is now. It's on Kentucky Street, and they had uh, they had a girl playing there, and she was fantastic on a Monday night. Uh, it was a great night, and it was a crowded. Uh, it was a nice room, and uh, just there's so much stuff musically. There are so many great young uh, and local musicians that we've got to go and see. Or you get a John O'Lear, you know. I yeah. mean, that's Van Morrison's <laughs> well, keyboard yeah, absolutely. player. John is, John's, yeah, the higher echelon. Of, uh, he is Petaluma royalty of players, I think. So Petaluma has definitely developed in Sonoma County really uh, a lot in the last 50 years. I mean, the, the you're talking about entertainment, and there are yeah. so many options. I mean, there we have multiple musical venues. There's always something to do. There's always something coming to town, a festival, a parade. You know, there's just so much. Um, hasn't always been that way. When did you move to Petaluma? Came here when our daughter was going to be born, 1990. And I don't think that story is different from a lot of people. Uh, We moved here in May of 1990. She was born in September of 1990. And I'll tell you this. Our daughter now has graduated from UC Davis. She's living in San Francisco. But after graduation from Davis, she went to work at a couple of wineries, Klein Cellars and Gloria Farrar. And she came home from work one day and she said, and, you know, every kid thinks where they grow up is not desirable. Every kid thinks that. Isn't that a funny universal? Yeah. People always think once they get out of where they grew up, everything's going to start changing for them. She comes home from work, and she says, you know, Dad, 
this place is kind of special. Oh, yes, it is. And she says, people are coming from all over the world to take tours at Gloria Ferrara and at Klein Cellars. And I said, yes, they are. I said, we actually picked this. You know, I had traveled every nook and cranny of the United States as a sportscaster. I mean, if you take the leagues that I broadcast in and the teams uh, and what I did, it would cover every nook and cranny of the United States and most of Canada. And so you take all of those communities that you visit, and what did a community need? It needs to have walkability to be a livable community. And here you've got a blank slate in downtown Petaluma and the economic revitalization that's going on and you fill in that blank slate and it's cornered by the movie theater, 14 screens downtown. And you can build a community in a way that creates a desirability and now you can look, there's a magazine, a national publication that has come out and list Petaluma as your number one spot to I was, go. I was going to mention that, that just Harper's came Bizarre. out. Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's Jim, very... Jim, would you explain that? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I just I saw the link just like anybody else. People are sharing it like crazy. Um, it's the number one destination this fall for a vacation spot. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Um, so I guess a question for both of you, and that's very interesting to hear you say that, David, that you traveled the country, and this was really a... Uh, uh, the play, you chose it based on exploring a lot of different places. That's fascinating. What do you think gives the town its soul? Oh, gee, it, it, to me, yeah. what gives it is the character of the town. You, you could go into the historic downtown and take a look at these historic mansions that are here and the walkability and you go down the river. I look forward to the day when the trestle is restored. Uh, Chris Stevak has been a leader on that. It needs to happen. Wow, I didn't even know you guys were thinking about that. Well, let's take, it, let's take this article to another level now. We're identified. We're on the map. Hey, where are you going to go? I want to go yeah. check out this Petaluma. Yeah. Well, let's take that trestle that's in the heart of downtown Petaluma and make it a walkable platform that well, people now, can Now, when you stroll. say trestle, so someone who doesn't know what that means and uh, what the pl- project you're is. You're talking about along the river. I am. The historic uh, railroad trestle in the downtown area absolutely. off of behind Applebox. Okay. If you grew up in Petaluma... Uh, a lot of us uh, kids used to hang out under the trestle uh, at the end of, uh, boy, off of, uh, well, it's behind the, it's very close to the outlet malls. There's an old wooden tree. I won't ask you what you did out there. <laughs> well, we were, geez, I even caught a de facto show out there one night. It's amazing, that place. But as a kid, uh, it was still in operation. Yeah. So uh, my friends and I used to go and play in all those fields because it was right down the street from where a good friend of mine lived. Well, you know, we just need to keep our eye on the ball and just kind of keep reinvesting in ourselves. And uh, this area has so much potential. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Okay, so I grew up in uh, Toluca Lake, North Hollywood, California. And the interesting part about this is that— He is wearing a Hawaiian shirt, by the way. <laughs> our Little League intersected the movie stars, but were my— Father and mother were both factory workers. My father died when I was young. But our Little League intersected the Hollywood movie stars. Now, we certainly weren't of that variety. But it led to where John Ritter was a friend. His father, Tex Ritter, sang the national anthem at our Little League opening every year. Yeah. Uh, my mother ran the concession stand and, uh, at the Little League, and we got to know all of the people. But... Um, that was an interesting background growing up where you have factory workers co-mingling with really the Hollywood elite, and it all came through Little League. And it's almost like you go full circle, look at the Little League experience did, that did we had here in Did you play baseball with Ronnie Howard? 
not with Ronnie Howard, with the kid that was on, because I'm older than Ronnie oh. Howard, with the kid that was on uh, The Real McCoys, uh, Winkleman, Michael Winkleman, Michael. Little Luke. Wow. Yeah, yes. L- Little League Ball. Little League Ball with John Ritter. You know, uh, so that's where I grew up. Okay. And you, uh, d- did you graduate college? Yeah, I went to uh, uh, junior college for a couple of years in the high desert. We had moved to a little town called Hesperia. So I graduated from Victor Valley Junior College, um, went to San Diego State, graduated from there with a degree in broadcasting, performed in nightclubs <laughs> in Los Angeles. Um, performed what in nightclubs? Comedy, did uh, political impressions. So my college roommate, when I wound up mayor in Petaluma, he said, I knew it. I knew you were serious about <laughs> politics. It Wait, was more than a joke. Can you do LBJ? My fellow Americans, I come to you tonight with a heavy heart and a particularly heavy load. That I haven't done LBJ in a long time. I hope that's and What were other popular ones you would do? Oh, you know, Dick Nixon. I had to do Nixon. I didn't want to even ask. I have to do Nixon. Yeah. Well, would you indulge yeah. me, please? Let me see if I can try because I haven't done this in 40 years. Uh, let me be blunt here. My fellow Americans. I come to you tonight to break the news to the boys on the moon that there's not enough fuel in that ship to bring you boys home tonight, or <laughs> uh, any night for that matter. Uh, after all, you took off with Apollo 13, an odd license plate on an even-numbered day. Now, as your president, here's the beauty of that, I'm going to introduce immediate legislation to give the moon three electoral votes, and I hope you'll vote for Dick Nixon by absentee ballot. <laughs> and you should know that he did the finger thing in, yes, in, I, as well. I, uh, holy God, you I don't know if that's any good or not. It's been years. I haven't Here's the thing about that. I've written songs that I wrote in high school. I can still remember the words of that. I can't remember friends' names, but I do no, remember that's the right. You remember Dear Grave. Stick? Dear Grave. Yeah. You know, the whole thing was ad-libbed, except that it wasn't, because I'd go in and I'd hold press conferences, and I wouldn't let people direct the question uh, to any particular person, I would reserve the right to answer with anybody that I felt was appropriate. So it looked all ad-libbed. Most of it wasn't. Some of it really was. And the best stuff would be the stuff that come out, you know, right on the spur of the moment. And then it, then it would come out every time. You know, because there, there's no new jokes. There's just old audiences. <laughs> Once you got a good one, you want to hold on. Yeah. To remember that. Yes. Um, <laughs> so back to Petaluma, we were talking about, you know, you, you guys explained about the soul and why you love it. Yeah. Are, are there any um, big characters or local icons past or present uh, that, that you look to, that you think of when you think of this town? Tom, you mentioned Helen Putnam earlier. Well, Helen Putnam always. She was, she was always larger than life to me. Yeah. Uh, her husband Rutherford was always kind of uh, big for me as well. But, you know, and then it's all the easy ones. Uh, Bill Sobranis, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, a, 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 an old dear friend, Michael Hansen, that one day I'll, I will have to discuss. Uh, he was quite something and quite a good friend. There were so many characters in this town that I keyed on when I was a kid. Yeah, I, did you get a chance to meet many of them coming in in 90? Bill Sobranis, yes. Yeah. The others, no. Yeah. Yeah, and you hear a lot of good things. What you hear about Bill Sobranis more is that not only did he know everybody and interview everybody, but he put the town on the map with the arm wrestling championship. And people still know that. You go back to Washington, and if you're looking for flood control money for Petaluma, wrist wrestling comes up, American graffiti comes up, too often polyclass comes up. Yeah. 
And so what I hope this town can do, if, if, if you could say what's on your wish list, I would say the one thing that would be on my wish list is let's finish the Polyclass Theater and give it a name. Yes. That, yeah. So people can be proud of it and it'll provide some closure to what has happened and, and in a successful manner and people can celebrate it. It's a beautiful old building. It's got a stage that we should be using. Well, we, I, I must say then, now that that's been brought up, I, a little background on, on that. I mean, obviously, most people who are listening to this should know Polly Class was a girl that was abducted and ultimately killed. Uh, what year was that? Do we recall? 1993. Okay. Uh, I was not aware of a theater that's being discussed, so maybe we could do a quick 30-second or uh, oh description of that. So it's, it's, in, it's being worked on, and it, obviously there's roadblocks. Well, it's the theater. It's right across the street from uh, City Hall. It's red-tagged for earthquake safety and yeah. structural issues. It would take about a million dollars to renovate it. Somebody out there has a million bucks. Come on. Yeah. Uh, you know, do something that uh, this is number it. one town in the country. We know that yeah. from Harper's We've got Bazaar. some younger theater groups that would love to be able to use absolutely. it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, just turn it to one. where it actually would be a celebration of the memory of a little girl. Uh, you know, I, I feel like as a father of a daughter, and I've met Mark Class, but I certainly don't know him. I, I don't know emotionally how he survived at all what happened. And, and I look and I see my daughter, and she'll be coming home this week, and I look and I go, you know what, to a large degree, you got to get lucky sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, with your kids. Uh, you just got to get lucky. And yes. uh, let's just finish the movie, the, the, the Polly class center yeah. put a stamp on it of approval get it done and uh and have something to celebrate so you mentioned essentially three uh, there, there are large pieces of the pedalum of fabric of history but i mean what both of you i mean what do you believe that this uh this town should be known for in washington you know what i mean i mean if it's known for wrist wrestling if it's known for poly class it's known for American graffiti. I mean, outside of, uh, you know, wine country and those things. I mean, what, what do you think it should Are be known for? Are you kidding? It, it's only one thing. It stands on its own. It should be known for Petaluma. This place is, yeah, yeah. I've been all over the country uh, and all over the place. And you know what? All I got to do is drop the name Petaluma and people know this town. They yeah. do. It, yeah. it is surprising. But, yeah. I, I wear in my Petaluma Animal Shelter. We'll get off the, uh, we were on a cruise ship not too long ago uh, up in the eastern seaboard. And we're into Canada on the eastern seaboard. Petaluma. Is that a no-kill animal shelter? I love Petaluma. I go, well, as a matter of fact, I mean, they're coming close to approaching that. That's great. I love Petaluma. They know it for the eggs. They know it for the chicken. They know it even for Lagunitas. And more people are are learning about it because of Lagunitas. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and again, uh, the wrist wrestling, it, it has its own soul. And this soul just transcends it's uh, it, it is amazing who where you'll be and who will know this town yeah i've had that experience myself going on different vacations and stuff you always seem to either meet somebody who lived in petaluma lives in petaluma or has someone close to them <laughs> that lives in petaluma it is a crazy thing it well, could be a lifeline if you need it yeah. and look at the kids that went and played a little league ball and that gets That's on abc tv petaluma it's a name that is unlike any other you know, a lot of cities have, oh, yeah, well, is that Richardson, Texas, or Richardson somewhere else? Yes. Petaluma, they know it. Yeah. You know, Johnny Gomes. I, I mentioned about Johnny Gomes. The Boston Globe got a hold of me, uh, you know, because we had the day in San Francisco a couple of years ago, declared it Johnny Gomes Day, and went yeah. to the ballpark and saw Johnny Gomes and play for the Red Sox. Let's tell the people out there who Johnny Gomes is. He's uh, a baseball player that has a heart of gold. Grew up uh, in Petaluma. From Petaluma, 10 years in the big leagues. Uh, and so he was playing with the Boston Red Sox. Now he's back with the Oakland A's. This is the second yeah. go-around with the Oakland A's. You know, I think he played with Casa Grande, but this Petaluma High School graduate would you know, forgive him for that. 
<laughs> yeah, he did play for Casa. Yeah, absolutely. And he's done a lot for all of the kids. He sponsors like all of the yes, little league does. teams, you know, the leagues, and he'll hold clinics for the kids, and he yeah. says, no parents allowed. Wow. And he takes the kids out to center field, and the kids are there, and the parents are, you know, looking from afar while the kid is getting instruction from a major league ball player, which that means everything yeah. to these kids. And so Very uh, giving. Johnny Gomes playing in the World Series, and the Boston Globe had, had asked something about, you know, we went to celebrate Johnny Gomes, and where is Petaluma? And tell him. And so they asked me for a quote, and they said about Johnny Gomes, what does he mean to your town? And I said, look. Some people, you either love them or you hate them. With Johnny Gomes, you either love them or love them. Or love him. That's it. There's yeah. no debate on Johnny Gomes. He, yeah. You know, he's one of a kind. He puts Petaluma on the map. Because when he comes to the plate and they start saying, well, he's from Petaluma. And here comes the stories. <laughs> Petaluma's where American Graffiti was filmed. Yeah. Petaluma's the egg capital of the world. You know, and that's on national TV. Then you got the Little League kids. The greatest ambassadors in the world. And what are they doing? They're raising money for the kids in Uganda? Yeah. Where do 12-year-olds have that kind of value that they go out there and they want to put their stamp on doing something good for the world? And those kids did. Yeah. Good crew. Good stuff. Good stuff. I agree. Um, As far as you being a politician, I mean, you would consider yourself a politician. You know, I never did until recently. I mean, now you got to cave in and admit it. Don't you hate the labels in life? Don't you hate it? (laughs) Can't I just be mayor and not be called a politician? You know, the stances that I've taken haven't always been popular. And so I I say, come on now, a politician wouldn't do that. You know, um, if they're right for the community, you got to take a stand on some things. But, yeah, I've come to a conclusion, okay, you put your name on the ballot and you get elected, you're a politician. Absolutely. So, um, and, you know, you, you hate the stereotypes that come with that. Yeah. So this, this may be a, a great home run question, or this may be a strikeout, since you don't really consider yourself one a lot of the time. But do you have any political figures, past or present, that you look to and say, all right, yeah, this guy is an inspiration, or I, I think about him when I think about a difficult decision or something? Uh, I can't can't say that because I don't look at this really as a political thing. I look at each individual issue on its merit, and I I think more about Bill Clem, who was an umpire at the turn of the century. And Bill Clem was once asked if he ever missed a call, and he said, not in my heart. And so that's really what's got to guide you is you look at it. Have I made mistakes? You bet. Because you make enough decisions, you're going to look back on some of them and say, "I, I wish I had done that differently. But in my heart at the time, Whatever I've done, I felt like was the right thing to do. So, Well, I mean, all, all three of us know this. Oftentimes the disappointments and failures can yeah. provide the, the greatest lessons. Um, I mean, and I'm sure you've had that in office and all that. Um, do, you, do any come to mind, uh, things where you've really left smarting and you, came, you emerged from it learning a lesson? Yeah, I did. And, in fact, it came up in a conversation today. Uh, there was a development that's on the uh, east side of town. It's um, a housing development that uh, it, there was – Close to 300 houses out there, all two-story. And I met somebody today that uh, when the market collapsed, the developer came back and wanted to put in one story and was able to, and this person bought a one-story house and loves it. And I says, you know, I should have insisted because I could have because I was the deciding vote on that project. I should have insisted at the time that there be a mix of one-story houses in that development, but I had made a promise to the neighboring community that if they worked it out with the developer and everybody was happy, the neighboring community and the developer, and they all could come to an agreement, that I would vote for the project. And I did that. I I made a promise that I didn't have to keep. I kept it, and I had regrets 
almost immediately after keeping it. And with that, I learned sometimes it's not necessarily the right thing to do to keep a promise if you, if you have some doubts in your mind that, look, there's still a better way. So, uh, you know, I look back on that and I think, okay, uh, review a project, improve a project. If it's improved enough, then approve it. And if it's not improved enough, take a pass on it because uh, once you approve it, it's forever. And so that's what I would say is that that's been a standard that I've tried to apply and you try to learn from your experiences. I think Yogi Berra said that. He said, you know, learn me your experiences. So. Well, and I'm glad. So who did you mention is the person, uh, the piece of life advice, the, the name that you just mentioned, uh, baseball guy? Um, Bill Clem? Bill, Bill Clem. Okay. Well, he's an old legendary Hall of Fame umpire. Okay. And, and so I figured you probably would find somebody from the sports world to uh, be an inspiration as opposed to the political world, because your roots are with... Yeah, yeah. My, my background with politics is as a comedian where I made fun of them all. <laughs> <laughs> Do, does anybody else um, come to mind in terms of, of life philosophies or mantras or things that sort of are guiding principles to you? You know, I see this really as nuts and bolts. Yeah. I don't see this as, uh, as much as you want to have a vision for a community and about where you would take it, I really see it as nuts and bolts and opportunities, challenges that present you. And people say, what are the three things you want to do as mayor? I guarantee you there's going to be 30 things you never dreamed of that you'll wind up in the middle of that will supersede the three things that you might have fantasized in your mind. And I, I guess the clearest thing I could give of that was we had uh, this Occupy movement. Oh, yes. And we had a very different experience in Petaluma than where they had it in other parts of the country. But absent the patience that was involved with a lot of key people with Occupy Petaluma as it was going on, we might have had a disaster here in Petaluma. And as mayor, you wind up, nobody will ever see it, but you're on the inside of something and you're trying to find breathing room for all concerned. And, And what happened, we had Tim Noon, who was phenomenal as the local spokesperson for that Occupy Petaluma. May I break in for a moment? Uh, why w- did you perceive it to be an imminent disaster, perhaps? You said it, it might have been a disaster. It could have been, because if you had any side of the equation that fell apart uh, or wanted too much out of an, uh, a demonstration or wanted to end it before it was ready to have an ending— it would have been a disaster. Yeah, if they'd wanted to move, the neighbors were, were starting to get antsy about it. There was a lot going on with that. There was. The, there was neighbors adjoining Penry Park that exercised the patience to allow this yeah. thing to run its course. Yeah. There were council members at the time, and I won't name them, who wanted to nip it in the bud and end it. There were council members that wanted more freedom for the Occupy movement, yeah. and neither course would have been successful And what happened as mayor, you're trying to talk and coordinate with all sides of the equation and then allow, and I give the credit to Tim Lyons at the police department, Tim Noon with the Occupy Petaluma movement, the neighbors that allowed that thing to run its course, and Scott Broden at the city working so closely. And all of those people were able to do their job. And as mayor, you're, you're moving all of the pressures away from the middle to try to create an eye in the storm so everything can function inside and ride it through. That is the defining thing that I will remember out of being Petaluma because Petaluma did not have a disaster. In fact, Petaluma no. became the poster child for how to manage that type of crisis. Went pretty smooth. Very, very David, smoothly. David, let, let me ask you then. Uh, so this might be one of those things that is uh, what defines a mayor as opposed to the city council members. Um, 
you as the mayor, it was it, did it become incumbent on you to uh, try and, and make sure that it go as smoothly as it did? Was it did it fall to you as your job to to see this through? Personally, you take that responsibility because it goes with the territory, but you don't have the power per se. But you're trying, and nobody really is aware of the role that a mayor is playing there, not even the other players in it, because you're not sharing that. You're just trying to buy some room on one side of the equation on those that want to nip it in the bud and buy some room on those that want it to go further than it may be capable of going and, you know, explain it to the neighborhood why it can't end immediately as frustrating as it is. And then everybody involved acted in the best interests of the town. At that moment of crisis, everybody involved, all of those council members, regardless of their personal preference of how they wanted to play out, everybody acted in the best interests of the town and it played out successfully. It really did. And yeah, and it could have. Actually, there were a couple moments where it felt like it it seemed as though it could have even gone a little bit. They wanted to go grander. Maybe the Occupy people wanted to go grander. Maybe the city did want to, or or people in the city did want to kind of slow it down. And uh, everybody played very nicely for that. It was was a beautiful thing to watch. And to your point, I mean, it's like being the face or leader of any organization or entity. I mean, you you may not be present when something's going on, but some person along the way, maybe a city employee, maybe not, may do something. And ultimately, if something happens in Petaluma and then it's handled, the reaction is bad on Petaluma's side, no matter who the official is that's handling it, I mean, ultimately, you're the face of Petaluma. It's going to come back to you. You know, I mean, people, a lot of the time. You're, you're right. When I, um, I went to a ribbon cutting when I was elected mayor um, the first time. And it was probably five days into the term. And I'm at this ribbon cutting. I said, well, I didn't have much to do with this. <laughs> and I said, well, I congratulate everybody that did. It was truthful. And we cut the ribbon. And, you know, it, it was nice. And I walked away. And a veteran person around politics took me aside and said, you need to take a little credit, even if it's not earned, because you're going to get a lot of blame that you're not doing either. <laughs> and so I kind of laughed. At it. And I've thought of those, those words exactly That is the times. basics of my very first question. And, you know, and I see that happening even with our president. All of a sudden, it seems as though in this country, uh, it's, it falls on the president to do everything now. And I, I don't recall that being the, uh, the original equation. Yeah, I, and I think about your role down here at the Phoenix. And, you know, a lot of people celebrate a place for kids, but then I, a lot of people also blame the place for a lot yeah. of things, which are you know, a lot of the time outside of the control or even off the property. And I That's think true. of, you know, I just think of my, like the, my role at the Phoenix and also at the market. Um, yeah. well, uh, for yeah. those out there who don't know, I, I have a key position at Petaluma Market down the street. And it's just, there are things that happen outside of your control that, you know, uh, because of your position, you're expected to yeah, have not let happen and then also deal with the and effects y- of And you are where the buck stops. Exactly. And so that's, you know, that is the, the good and the bad of taking a position. Well, uh, the interesting thing about mayor is that people assume that you have more power than you do uh, because I'll hear things about what's going on in the schools. Uh, that's a separately elected school board. Whatever goes on in the schools, the uh, mayor has actually no more input than any other parent, resident, whatever, taxpayer, in reality, because it's separate. It's a separate jurisdiction. Yeah. But people don't realize that, so they'll send me you know, the complaints about what happened with their teacher at their school to their child. Uh, I'll forward it, you know, that kind of thing if you get that. And but, that's a tough position, too, having to sort of break down how the system works to people. You know what I mean? It may seem like a cop-out, but in fact, I mean, what can you do in some circumstances? Well, sometimes. I mean, yeah. What you do is you learn how to use the forward button. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, You know, a great way to communicate to any mayor, this is what I've learned, 
uh, and I'm not so great on technology maybe, but I've learned how to use this part of technology is like, like what you're saying. Please put it in an email to me because then I'm not yes. misinterpreting what your particular issue yeah. is. And I know exactly which departments to send it to. So it's kind of a hub and spoke thing. I've, I've been yeah. doing this long enough, eight years where, okay, I, here's the issue. There's the staff person that goes to it. And I will get a response back from a city staff and I'll get a response back in a very timely manner. And we're able to communicate back to yeah. uh, the constituents that way. So people listen to this if they hear it in any jurisdiction in any town. You email your mayor. Email. That's not Facebook, by the way. It is email. Yeah, email. And and, and you'll get a fast, timely, probably thorough response that'll surprise you how fast it'll come back to you. And as long as we're checking things off the to-do list, if you could forward a million dollars to the organizers <laughs> of the Polyclass Poly Theater, Class Theater, we would really good. like that thing yeah, to get good. done. So now, when you were describing the Occupy movement, you used the word defining. I think you might have said it was like a defining moment, or it was just a, it was a, you, you used the word to def, as a defining thing. And I'm glad you did that, because I was going to ask you, for your life now, separate from uh, you being the mayor of the city, you look back, defining moments in your life. Obviously, you know, marrying your wife was a defining moment. Obviously, moving to Petaluma was a defining moment. Your daughter's birth was a defining moment. Becoming the mayor was a defining moment. Well, I think you're taking it all away from me. No, I mean, but these are... <laughs> well, I, I, everybody knows that when you get married or when you have children, yeah. these are big moments. Right. And, I, and I'm curious, outside of those things that many people have, if you... Uh, sure. Can identify any? Sure. Graduating from college was a defining moment. I was the first one in my family to graduate from college. It meant a lot to me. I, um, I washed dishes. I worked my way through school. Um, I mentioned my father died when I was eight years old. I never thought I could go to college. I, I, it's some of the things that drive me today is make sure that there's opportunity out there for kids that's relevant. Uh, so that they have the ability to earn a dollar. But graduating from college was a defining moment for me. I had wanted to be a Major League Baseball announcer from the time I was nine years old. I had mentioned that our Little League, uh, uh, we moved when I was 14, but until we moved to the high desert, intersected the Hollywood movie stars. Well, when my father died when I was eight, my baseball coach in Little League at age nine happened to be a very wealthy man. Uh, He would send his limo. The limo would pick me up, go to pick him up, take us to the ball game, Hollywood Stars, and we would see the ball game. The limo would take him home. He lived adjacent almost to Bob Hope, and then the limo would come over to where the factory workers live and drop me off. And so this went on for a few years. Um, I'm in Albuquerque broadcasting AAA baseball, and he calls. He had been a writer for the Sporting News, and that was a hobby thing for him. He had uh, investments and owned a tire company, and I don't know where else his money came from because it was a lot of money. It wasn't a little. But he called me, and he he, uh, did an interview with me and published it in one of the daily newspapers in Los Angeles about the kid that played on his Little League team that now is the Dodgers AAA announcer and a step away from the major leagues. Of course, he said, you know, this will be the kid that will take Vin Scully's place. Well, here I am, age 66. <laughs> Vinny is still doing Dodger baseball yeah. at age 86. <laughs> I don't know who takes Ben Scully's He's place. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> but I did go to the Giants. I did go on to the Giants. That, <laughs> and what a great segue. So that that phone call and, and that trajectory made you get to the Giants then? Eventually, yeah. I got to the Giants um, maybe a year or two later than that. And he passed away before I made it to the oh. Giants. But uh, his son went on and became executive producer with the Jeffersons. His son's oh. name was Mike Milligan. He was a center fielder on our Little League team. And so, you know, I had a chance to spend some time with Mike one year in spring training while I was doing the Giants. And, um, but 
actually getting the job in San Francisco with the Giants. That had to be a yeah. defining moment. And that's a, a great segue to, yes, you were the radio voice of the San Francisco Giants from 1981 to 1985, those seasons. Right. Yeah. Tell us about that experience. I, you know, it was an up and down thing because uh, in 1982, the Giants had a year for the ages. I mean, it was a great season. It went to the last uh, weekend of the season. Giants, Dodgers, and Braves all battling it out. And on the last day of the year, Look, we lost on Friday night four to nothing. And Did so you the- lose to the? You know what? <laughs> in 1972, I believe it was, they lost that final series to the Dodgers, which meant the Dodgers took the pennant. I had to pay a twenty dollar bet to the coach of the football team in front of the entire student body at Petaluma High School at a rally, and I promised then in 1972 I would never root for the greatest team that ever played baseball again, and I have not. Now it sounds to me <laughs> that's like, bitter. <laughs> oh, it was bitter. I was bitter. Honestly. And unfortunately, we can't edit that out, Tom. No, I know can't. <laughs> that's all. I don't know what to say. It's allowed to be bitter. All of my friends who are Do- are Giants fans are you know absolutely put up with it, and all of my friends who are Dodgers fans because there's a ton of them, uh, you know, are willing to let me have that. But uh, so in 1982, did they do the same thing? Didn't they? Well, in did they get down to the last series and blow it and choke? No, well, no, because I can't call it a choke. The, the Braves had lost 19 out of 21 games to let the Dodgers and Giants back into the pennant chase. So you get down to the last weekend of the season, and it's a possibility of a three-way tie between Braves, Giants, and Dodgers. So on Friday night at Candlestick, uh, game goes into the eighth inning, no score. And in the eighth inning, Rick Mundy hits a grand slam homer, and the Giants lose the ball game four to nothing to the Dodgers. So then uh, Saturday, we lose 15-2 to two to the Dodgers, and that mathematically eliminates us, and we get to Sunday's game. And I'll never forget it because in the locker room before the ball game, Joe Morgan comes in and Frank Robinson, the manager of the Giants, and Frank posts a lineup card, Joe's not in the lineup. And Joe knows he's leaving the Giants, that he had had his two-year run there and he's going to be leaving. And he had told me he would be traded to Philadelphia because he had some things in his contract and he had it all worked out. The Phillies were accumulating what they called the Traveling Hall of Fame. They had Pete Rose. They had Mike Schmidt. They had uh, Tony Perez. And they were soon to have Joe Morgan. So Joe was going home with Pete and Tony and, you know, his friends. So he knew he was going. This is going to be his last game playing in San Francisco. He's from the East Bay over in Oakland, and Frank Robinson doesn't have him in the lineup card. Now, Frank did that on purpose because he really wanted to light a torch under Morgan. If Morgan was going to play, he wanted to make sure Morgan was really going to play. And Joe was a gamer. If he was in the lineup, he was going to bust his butt, but this brought him to a higher level. So... Frank reposts the lineup, and Morgan's in the lineup, and we get down to the uh, bottom half of the seventh inning. Game's tied. Terry Forrester's pitching for the Dodgers, and Joe Morgan slams a home run, and that effectively knocked the Dodgers out of the pennant because the Dodgers lost on the strength of that home run. Here's Joe Morgan in the Hall of Fame, 20 years in baseball, did so many things, greatest second baseman maybe from the time of Rogers Hornsby right on through to Joe Morgan, maybe the best second baseman all around that ever lived even to this day. I, I could make a case for that. The way he fielded, the way he ran the bases and stole, the way he hit for power, the way he fit in and made the big red machine. So Joe Morgan picks the highlight of his career. Two world championships with the Cincinnati Reds, a couple of MVP awards, and Morgan's highlight of his career is a home run that he hit in that ball game that knocked the Dodgers out. And the reason I know that is I broadcast it, and Joe Morgan picked it for his highlight, and the Hall of Fame paid me a talent fee to have the soundbite of that uh, 
on a talking baseball card. For one year, they produced these things called talking baseball cards, and they sold little cassette players with a card itself. And my brother being the collector, not me, I don't have anything. <laughs> my brother bought the tape recorder and the highlight card. So that right there, I mean, what a great, uh, yeah. what a great thing to have from yeah. that experience. I mean, getting to be the the radio voice of that organization must have been a dream realized for you. It was, uh, you know, and I, I'll tell you this: um, I was a back of the busser, and I was a back of the guy of the plane. That doesn't happen for radio announcers. It just doesn't happen for people in the media. Um, it's just my personality. Maybe guys knew me. I did comedy in the nightclubs and the minor leagues when we would go on the road that rippled through baseball I was a young man that players age Uh, so it just opened up all sorts of doors and so when I came to the Giants I wound up sitting on every flight with Joe Morgan in the back of the plane and we played backgammon on every flight we played for a dollar a game and when he was getting traded I told his father I said I don't understand why Joe's leaving the way he beats me at backgammon I'm sure I'm gonna make him a rich man (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> he was making a lot of money playing baseball. But. Yeah. No, but that was that bucket game. You guys are on the plane an awful lot. So, <laughs> so you you did. I mean, anything else to add from that experience? Because that's big. I mean, when people talk about your biography and you know your, your your career, I mean that is that's a huge thing to be associated with the San Francisco Giants to be their radio voice. Do you it have was, any other thoughts on that experience? Or for you, is it just another thing that you did? I mean, it was cool. But, you know, I mean, you've gone on to do other things. Well, uh, what, it, what it means to me when people talk about the Giants, what they're talking to me about is something that they remember that is a good positive experience for them. And much of it was positive for me, and some of it was so challenging. The last two years that I was there, they lost 196 games. That's incredibly tough to talk through. You know, and so I used to tell people, I said, my job's to do the radio and keep my mouth shut. That's a hard thing, you know. happy. Yeah, yeah, it's all, that. I wish they'd have won more. And the irony of it is, they won the following year after that. So maybe David, you can understand my frustration. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I had, um, I heard that you you left the job because your daughter uh, was coming I mean, uh, was born, correct? Or it was sort of incompatible with being a parent, is my understanding. Uh, very incompatible. I, I was broadcasting AAA baseball in Tidewater with the New York Mets AAA Farm Club. And uh, that was a good job. It was a nice town. You cannot phone in raising your children. You've done some research because, you know, when people ask me that, I I was still broadcasting until my daughter was going to be born. And that was it. And it's the right thing. I look back on it. People ask me, do you miss it? Yes, you miss it. Of course you miss it because that's a dream job. Look, there were, uh, uh, you know, about 56 jobs in the world. It was harder to get that job than to be a United States senator, especially if you weren't a player and I wasn't, you know. So you look back on that. Do you miss the job? Yes. Do you miss the locker room camaraderie? Because it's funny things that happen in the locker room. Absolutely. But do I, would I trade it for the fact that I know my daughter never in a million years? There's, you know, you know in, in, in this side of the, in, in our business, we've seen a lot of people come through in bands that are uh, on the pinnacle of making it and they've been on the road for so very long. And quite often you'll find one or two of their players uh, will have children and decide to leave the band at that time and uh, for that very reason. And I don't think any of them ever looked back. No, I, I didn't understand it. My best friend of the minor leagues was a trainer for, it was Albuquerque when we were together, uh, and he traveled with the ball club as I traveled with the ball club in the minor leagues, and he had three kids. And he got to the major leagues, and he was there for a few years, and the Dodgers were cashing World Series checks, and that's a lot of money for a trainer. I mean, it's triple your salary maybe on a World Series share. And he quit. And I said, Paul, what are you doing? I wasn't, you know 
married yet. I think maybe I just got married about the time he quit. We didn't have our daughter. I said, what are you doing? He says, David, you're going to have children. You're going to understand it. He said, I can't even begin to explain it to you right now, but you'll understand it. He walked away, never looked back. Not at all. So it's, uh, you know, it's the greatest game in the world. I love it. I love Kuiper and Kruko. Uh, when I go out to the ballpark, I see them. Uh, I understand they do some trash on me sometimes. <laughs> uh, I can do some trash on them too. <laughs> but you know, Actually, but, can you do their voices? No. <laughs> but in my heart, no, they're, they're the best people ever. I love those guys. Yeah. And they were, we were three peas in a pod on the road together. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And then so you... Um, around that time, you, you settled in Petaluma after leaving broadcasting uh, for the, the seams. That I don't know. Um, Moved to Petaluma um, actually May of 1990, and our daughter was born September of 1990. And I had a contract in Virginia Beach to do one. I was going to do baseball and then, you know, find out my wife's pregnant and I'm thrilled. And yet I got this contract. And I went out to Virginia Beach and I, I, I tried to do it. And the owner of the ball club loved my wife. And we were halfway through the season, and he said, you know, you don't seem as happy as last year. And my wife was in Virginia Beach for all of the games the year before. And I said, well, of course I'm not. I said, I really belong home. I don't know what I'm doing here. And he said, give me enough time to find a replacement, and I'll let you go if you want. And at the same time, I wound up hooking up with KNBR and doing talk, and um, that provided a bridge, and I built a business in municipal securities that allowed me to keep my own schedule and be with my daughter, and I helped raise her. You know, my wife and I, we didn't have babysitters. We moved to Petaluma, uh, raised my daughter. My wife worked part-time. I worked my business whenever she wasn't um, available to take care of my daughter. I didn't work. I took care of my daughter. Greatest experience in the world, and you're never getting that time back. And so I'll look back on it, and I'll say, you know what? Been there, done that. Uh, one day out of the blue, a friend called me. He says, what do you know about Canadian League football? <laughs> my daughter's four <laughs> years old. Interest rates are rising. We've got adjustable rate uh, mortgage on our home. And I'm working on commissions on selling municipal securities. And I, I said, know it takes five quarters to make an American dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, Rick, I don't know nearly as much about Canadian football today as I'm going to know tomorrow. What's up? Yeah. And he said, well, you know, he says, if you want to do some broadcasting, he said, you work with Lee Gross Cup. Season starts next week. Uh, things changed here, and I need an announcer. And he said, we've agreed that we would hire you if you want to do it. This is what I'll pay you, and not a penny more. And I said, I'll take it. And that's how you got into KNBR. <laughs> no, no, that was KFBK oh, in Sacramento. KFBK in Sacramento, okay. Yeah, no, uh, KNBR had come and gone. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so I wound up at KFBK in Sacramento broadcasting Sacramento Goldminer football for one year. The team went defunct and moved to San Antonio, Texas, so it ended. But I made enough money to take care of those rising interest rates on the mortgage, and I built my municipal bond business, and, you know, so life went on. Okay. So, and then in the last 10, 15, 20 years, you've done the municipal bonds. You've also done some radio things here and there, correct? I mean, yeah. these are things yeah. you've done. Could you explain, maybe in 30 seconds, to someone out there who doesn't know what a municipal bond is or what municipal finance includes, what exactly that is? Well, it could be all sorts of things, but the one that I worked on as far as the city goes and reviewing was our wastewater treatment debt yes. that allowed us to finance the sewer and you look through the rate structures of it and you could see that what they did essentially with a 23 million dollar underwriting which was the last piece of the financing for that wastewater treatment plant the underwriter originally had the entire maturity uh date 
with a 30-year maturity, but they use what's called sinking funds to retire the debt serially over the last 10 years. What I asked the underwriter to do was break it up, shorten the maturity dates that lowered the debt service that we had to pay because we weren't borrowing all of the money on the 30-year bond rate. We were borrowing some of it at lesser intervals on the yield curve. So little things that you can look at, but municipal bonds are simply debt to municipalities. In the case of the sewer, it's an enterprise fund, self-containing, has its covenants to maintain rate structures to make sure the bondholders are whole. And uh, that's it. It's, it's as basic of a form of finance as it could be. So you maintain your position in municipal finance, of course, while you're uh, the mayor of Petaluma, because the mayor of Petaluma does not pay a salary. Well, actually, I went through cancer treatments a couple of years ago, and that provided a wonderful opportunity to retire from work. Is that so? <laughs> I, I did not know that. Yeah, I had bladder cancer. I'm 100% well, uh, but was not going to be able to work through that. And But I did stay and do all of my duties as mayor. And so I'm retired from the municipal security. Securities. Uh, I don't twitch like I used to. <laughs> That's a positive. <laughs> I'm not up at 4:30 in the morning watching yield curve movements. <laughs> so you, um, one more question on the radio uh, career. You interviewed some former presidents. I read on your site. You know, it was so great. Um, actually, the same person that hired me to do Canadian League football for a brief period of time ran a family of stations up in Santa Rosa and KSRO was one of them. And so he said, you know, you want to come on up and do this program? This is a person that discovered Rush Limbaugh. He's very conservative. He knows I'm clearly not. Uh, but he said, hey, why don't you come on up and you know, do this radio program? So we put it together and Mike DeWald is the person's name. Young man, 18 years old at the time, very shy. And I thought, this ain't going to work. You know, because radio, to, in order to book guests, you've got to be a little bit out yeah. there, a, a type A personality, I'm thinking. Mike DeWald is the best producer I've ever worked Son with anywhere. I would recommend him to anybody. I, I told him, I says, you know what we want? We want anybody that has marquee value on this program. So the deal turned out to be if they wrote a book, I won't do the cliff notes. You get somebody on of marquee value, and I'll read the book. He had me reading four books a week. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> it was you know, phenomenal. About that, uh, it is so easy to tell a type A personality uh, when they're calling to book a show here at the Phoenix. It's so easy for me to say, you know, email me. But when you get that quiet, humble individual that is so sincere, <laughs> all you can do is say, all right, I'll give you a date. So going with the quiet, uh, non-assuming person is a great way to go sometimes. It was great. I'll tell you the interviews that we had that I'm really proud of. Yeah, that would be good. We had Andrew Card on, President Bush's chief of staff. And at first he's like, I don't know if I want to do this, you know, because he's been really raked over the coals a lot for events that happened inside the Bush administration. So what does he want to talk about? I said, all I want is I want the story of 9-11. I want to know what you did from the moment you whispered into the president's ear until that day ended and you went to sleep or whatever, whenever it ended. Okay. He came on. We did 45 minutes, kind of like this, free form. No editing for commercials, no nothing. Just run it. Now, we had to break it up for commercials when we put it on the air. Yeah. He called back afterwards. Said, anytime you want to, you know, want me on, I want to do it. Thank you very much. So you get the story from Andrew Card. We had Alan Simpson, a Republican senator yeah. from the Iraq study group. We had Leon Panetta, chief of staff huh. for President yeah. Clinton, Democrat. And CIA, from I think, wasn't he? Or? Iraq study group. He yeah. went on and became the head of the CIA yeah. after that. But he had been secretary of defense and yeah. chief of staff Absolutely. in the Iraq study group. So you get both Republican, Democrat alike agreeing on, as it turned out, yeah. the Iraq study group probably identified all of the calamities of what they were going to face ultimately in that Middle yeah. East crisis. <laughs> they just didn't 
unfold as fast as I think they, they put their, their mark on them. We had Jimmy Carter on a couple of times, oh, maybe wonderful. four. We had uh, President Clinton on twice in two nights. And this was funny because he was on the first night. And the next night at 6 o'clock, we hit the news. And this is the night of the California primary. And, of course, he's coming on to promote Hillary and her run for the nomination for president. We're into CNN news. And we're about a minute and a half into the news. And there's President Clinton on. And he says, uh, would Dave like me to come on and talk to him on the phone again? I said, Mike, pull the plug on the news. <laughs> I'm not authorized to do that. I'm taking a chance. I'm saying, pull the plug. You've got the president here, you know, of the United States. Okay, so he's, you know, not current, but he's a president. What's a president? Yeah. Yeah. And and so he was on the second night. It was so funny. And the the people at the radio station, they loved the fact that they had, you know, we had Barbara uh, Streisand on. We had uh, uh, Alan Alda. You know, just some great marquee guests yeah. on KSRO. Yeah, and 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 you credit your producer for that. Absolutely, yeah. because Best. he because he just reached out and uh, and booked the guests. He and knew what like he was that. doing. I knew yeah. this was going to work. I was like about you know, like I say in the beginning, I went home and I told my wife the first day. I said, I haven't got the heart. You know, this kid. You know, this isn't going to work. I haven't got the heart to say anything. To radio station. I, it's not going to make or break my career. It's already busted. You know. So, <laughs> I just roll with it and we'll see what happens. We're about a month into this thing and I'm sitting at the desk and he's off working, doing whatever he's doing. And the phone rings and I had thrown out this thing a couple of days before about Mario Cuomo, who was surfacing in the news, maybe a potential Supreme Court appointee or whatnot. And so Mario Cuomo's name's bouncing around. So, you know, I throw it out a couple of days before. See if you can get Mario Cuomo on. So I'm sitting at the desk. I'm all alone and the phone rings and I answer it. And, um, you know, this voice on the other end is um, David Glass there. I said, this is David Glass. And uh, well, this is Mario Cuomo. What do you want to talk to me about? <laughs> Go down the hall like this and just fire it up and do it. You know, it was great. He, it, Mike DeWald at KSRO is the best producer, not only that I've ever worked with, but that I've ever seen. That's the truth. And there he is at KSRO. He is phenomenal. We would be doing a radio program like this. While this would be airing, we would be doing another interview because somebody was available. We might do an interview during the five-minute news break and have a a four-and-a-half-minute interview with somebody because they were available. We might have a three-minute commercial break going on, and he's hitting all of those commercials while we're doing a a two-and-a-half-minute interview because somebody's available. I'm sitting at home in my living room sick with the flu. And the phone rings, and he says, would you like to have Ambassador Wilson on? This is Joseph Wilson, Valerie Plain Wilson's husband. I said, sure, when? He says, in about 90 seconds. <laughs> uh, was this before, before or after she'd been outed? It was in the process, wow. because the book hadn't come out yet. Yeah. But when she was, uh, actually wrote her book when it came out, you know, it was after Ambassador Wilson had written his op-ed of what I did not find in Niger. And now Valerie Plame Wilson writes her book and it's all redacted by the CIA when it's, when it's done. They shipped the book to me and I read it overnight, but you can't understand much. You got to go to the appendix of it and read the appendix because that the CIA was not capable of redacting. It was somebody else's secondhand observations and it didn't come through access of the CIA. So you could, you had to kind of read the book and read the appendix at the same time back and forth. But we were on, uh, she was on with Larry King on CNN and then she was on KSRO. I think we were second in the country to interview her. Valerie Plain Wilson's lawyer is a lady named Joan Sloan. 
and we had built a rapport with Joan Sloan, and Joan Sloan referenced Valerie Plame Wilson. Now she's in a hotel in New York. They're not telling anybody what hotel. You're not calling her. She's calling you. Nobody knows where she is. She's like locked away, and we got 45 minutes with her. Hottest interview in the country on KSRO. You know, that reminds me, didn't you have some pride in being a part of that in Sonoma County? So much. I mean, to, to best... draw the national attention to Sonoma County through that program. I mean, that's one thing that strikes me from those stories. I loved it. I, I, you know, I didn't make that kind of money doing that program, but it was something that was a burning desire. Okay, so I'll, I'll share this. We talked about highlights. If you, if you go back and people say, well, what happened to you? You know, you were doing the Giants games and you kind of fell off the face of the earth. Well, I had gone to Hawaii. And I was going to go for a job interview, and I was going to go do the talk show that I did at KSRO after the Giants. They knew my work from baseball. I go out to Honolulu, but before we went to Honolulu, went to Maui. And in Maui, I fractured my neck. And so I go into the radio station in Honolulu, and I, I say to the program director, I'm sorry, I'm in no condition to work. I can't work. I don't know what I'm in for. Uh, you know, and I've got the neck brace on, and I can hardly walk. But... Um, Anyway, so that I didn't get to do that. Well, here came the opportunity at KSRO, and it was more a creative uh, venture at that point. It's 2006. You know, uh, this is not a career saver. This is like putting a stamp on your career and saying, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do something like Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way, <laughs> you know. And here I wind up with this producer. And that's why when I go home and I say to my wife, well, you know, this isn't going to work, but I haven't got the heart. It turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened. And that program <laughs> is so special to me. I had so much fun doing it, um, but by July of 2008, and I started doing that program late 2005, by July of 2008, I wanted to come back to the political arena, so that was a paying job at the radio station. I left that. You talk about money. See, money isn't everything. Right. You got to find what it is that you really want to do. I wanted to do the radio show. It's like, been there, done that. What more am I going to do? You know, we had presidents on. Um, maybe we could have held out for the Pope. You know, but <laughs> it, it, it had like run its course. I did everything with it that I wanted to do. I want to come back and I want to try this hand at seeing if I could put a stamp on Petaluma and make it something. This is a special place. Yeah. The, the, two things about those stories resonate with me. Number one is, you know, being involved in something that draws national attention to your venture at KSRO. I mean, that really resonates with me and the work that I do here with Tom. I mean, anytime we can get like a Hillary Duff or a Snoop Dogg or a Smashing Pumpkins or whatever, I mean, anyone who you would never think would come to this area, anytime we can facilitate that, I feel special. You know, I feel like this is, this is great that other outsiders are able to come in and draw attention to our And community. in the end, that's easier than it seems it should be. Yeah, exactly, because it is a special place. You know what I mean? It, 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 things happen that you would never think would happen in this area. You know what I'm saying? Yes, You I would do. never think you would get to do those interviews, but you were able to do them. No, and, I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 at the beginning, I was hoping we would do that, but, yeah. you know. Well, I, you would hope, but you would never think realistically you'd be on the phone with Bill Clinton doing an interview. How special is that? You know what, and I look back on it, because the other day somebody asked me, I said, well, who's the most special person you've interviewed? And this gets to be like a Bill Sobranus moment yeah. because that's what I got to thinking about. I said, well, you know, that would be hard for me to, to do because I said, if you're talking sports, you're talking Joe DiMaggio, Willie Mays, yeah. Mickey Mantle, right. Duke Snyder, Johnny Unitas, Bill Russell. I said, I said, how do you pick from that? Pete Rose, Henry Aaron. Willie McCovey? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, stress. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'll tell you this story about Willie McCovey, okay? Because oh, he okay. went playing by the time I got to the Giants. No, no. Yeah. Willie is six foot five, maybe six, <laughs> six. You know, but Hence he's the stretch. Yeah. 
I'm five foot eight. I walk in the locker room and Willie McCovey's sitting on the table at the and, and they have this big like picnic bench table in the Giants locker room. He's sitting there and we're looking. I'm standing. He's sitting. We're looking eye to eye. And he's got this tie on. I look at it. And I said, Willie, that is really a beautiful tie. And he looks at me and says, well, thank you, David. Maybe when you grow up, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I'm thinking if I tied this tie, it would go down to my ankles. <laughs> the, the other thing that resonates with the stories that you told is you talk about your producer who was so powerful. And I'm sure you, you realize this in your job as mayor. You know, you're given credit for a lot of things you don't do. You're given blame for a lot of things you don't do. But it's the people who do a lot of the work, uh, you know, in your organization, which are so responsible for the success you have. You you're know, that right. producer was such a was such a. I mean, without him, a lot of the stuff that you were able to accomplish probably wouldn't have been able to happen. Oh, it would not have happened. And it's a great lesson, you know. Um, so many shows we've done here long before I got here, Tom. I mean, you've been yeah. doing this for thirty years. Yeah. I've been because of people who've come in and I've done great in. things. Yeah, just absolutely. like with the producer David that you had you we look at the people you're like there's no way this person can ever yeah, pull this no. off no and, yes it, it, absolutely and it's, we always talk about on the show this is an oft-repeated thing is a lot of the time the people who accomplish great things are the people who are too stupid to realize they yeah. can't do it yeah well absolutely. you know what yeah if you That's, can believe it and conceive it you can achieve it yeah and, and I, so you don't have any boundaries you know yeah. it's like yeah we can do that yeah. if you don't have the fear not to ask yeah, if you don't have, yeah, and, and those are, and you know, and again, your stories sort of reinforce those two things. I think those are powerful life lessons. I think if people can uh, realize that anything is possible, all you got to yeah, do yeah. is try. Absolutely, you got to be stupid enough to try. That's <laughs> the deal. Exactly. So, I mean, those things resonate with me. Um, so, I guess I would say before we conclude to my last question, our one more last thing, question. One more yeah. thing. Did you ever talk with Gaylord Perry? Sure. Did you ever get to ask him about the spitball? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> okay, so you know Mike Murphy, the Dodger Club, uh, giant clubhouse guy. Everybody yeah. knows him as Murph, and you still see him. He's still in the dugout. You know, we're all getting elderly now. So, okay, in the minor leagues, the umpiring crews, and, you know, they were my friends. And they all came to the major leagues as I came to the major leagues. And there's an umpiring crew that's, in Oakland, the Giants are on the road, and the Oakland A's are playing the Seattle Mariners. And for some reason, it was a date where maybe Gaylord Perry had done something in Giants history. And I'm doing this interview with Mike Murphy. Remember, the Giants are going to lose 100 games, so you're really kind of <laughs> looking for something to find. What am I going to talk about today? i got to fill, you know, 20 minutes on a pregame show. So I talked to Mike Murphy all about Gaylord Perry because, you know, he was throwing the puffball by then. I don't know if you remember the cloud of smoke when he, you know, would take the rosin bag and get this big cloud of smoke around the mound, and then he would throw the ball while there was all the smoke in the air. Yep. So he would, I, I said, so tell me about, you know, Gaylord. Oh, Murph says he had the stuff everywhere. You know, he's talking about the Vaseline and where he had it. And Murph's <laughs> giving away all the trade secrets. Yeah. That's the day that the umpire crew went out into the mound and undressed Gaylord Perry. And Gaylord Perry gets suspended for 10 days. <laughs> and I said to Murph, you got him suspended. You got him. <laughs> you bet. So, yeah. Slick. Slick. Did you, and Tom, did you have any other questions? I mean, that was I a good one. Actually, that Gaylord was your last Perry one. Was, yeah, the pinnacle for me. 
<laughs> you know, I, I got to watch the Giants when I think they were the greatest team in baseball. <laughs> Not once did I see them win a pennant. No, I, you know, Charlie Fox was a manager then, and I know what you're referring to, five consecutive years of second place. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And everybody took turns dancing to first while the Giants held second yes. five consecutive years. Oh, man. So over a five-year period, they had the best record in baseball yes. and not a pennant. Not a pennant. Well, I was all through my childhood, all through the 60s and up in the 70s. Oh, man. <laughs> and I was a tantrum thrower, I'll admit it. And honest <laughs> to God, it was always tough. Jeez. I guess the, the last question I would ask you um, would be your legacy. I don't know. I, I, you know, other people have to keep score because I'm not. Uh, I don't know. What brings me to the question is, is as a public figure, and you are now, as yeah, being a two-term mayor, you know, I mean, you have to have a heightened awareness as to your positions, as to what you say, as to your actions and all that. You have to think about this stuff more than just somebody who's not in the public limelight. Well, I think that's true. Um, uh, perception is reality. And in politics, it's so. I hope people would, as a legacy, recognize that whether people agreed with me or disagreed with me, what I tried to do, whether I was successful or not, but what I sincerely have tried to do is explain how things are as I see them. And that's why it goes back maybe to the comment about Bill Clem earlier. Look, at this is what I see in my heart. Not, and I've said to people, don't confuse uh, desire with capability because everybody desires traffic relief, for instance. Are we capable of doing some of these things that have been promised? And it breaks down quite often where we're not capable. So it, it's, uh, it goes back, maybe we had talked about what politicians are inspirational. I think the title, maybe not Al Gore so much as an inspiration, but the title of Inconvenient Truth is compelling. There's inconvenient truths out there, and that, that's the challenges that we have, and there's not an infinite supply of money. In fact, there's a scarcity of money. And so I think my legacy, if anything, would probably be that here was a guy that uh, just... I tried to tell people what really I thought was happening and what the challenges are that we're really facing and tried to deal with a number of crises, and we had them. It was no fun laying off city employees. You talked about you're as good as the employees behind you that do the job. We have an exceptional group of city employees. Yes, we do. And, you know, we pruned down city payrolls uh, from 335 positions to 262. Yeah, in a town of 60,000 people. And, and that, that's a lot of pruning. Yeah, We did it in a way that I tried to do it where you showed some compassion to people that were losing their jobs because we've joked around a lot. But, you know, broadcasting, show business, all of this, it has its ups and downs. And I know what it is to lose your job. And so when we were going through the staff layoffs, we took – a general fund down to $5,000. That's, that's as low as you could take it legally because legally you couldn't take your general fund down to underwater. I hope that the legacy is, is that even though uh, times were tough and they were, that we did the best we could to keep valuable people whole for as long as we could and we tried to give them a way to find a path to set themselves up as they moved out because they had to move out because there wasn't going to be the revenue to keep them. We just didn't have the money to do that anymore. And the big hits happened to the park department. The big hits happened in community development, but it happened to the police department as well uh, because at the end of the day, that was what was left to cut. 
And so they're all good people. Uh, we'll have our discussions here, and it'll all be really, for me, focused around financial capability. It's not about um, the quality of people, because quality of people is good. The people that are City Hall, good quality people. Yeah, they really are. You know, uh, it, there is one thing I wanted to add then. Uh, uh, for the last couple of elections, I, I since I've been 18, I haven't missed an election. I voted in every election. And... Uh, but I am choosing not to vote on many of the national level things uh, because I don't know if I trust the parties anymore. I don't know if I trust somebody that actually is a, that is uh, that is representing a party. But if you want to make a difference, please always go out and vote. We have an election coming. And if you choose not to vote on the national level, I might understand that. But if you want to make a difference in your world, vote on your local levels. These are the people that are actually in the trenches doing the work that will affect you on a daily basis. They're, they're the ones that are trying to keep our police forces open, our fire departments open, our roads working, and all of that. These are the votes that I think will count the most. So uh, if you haven't been voting like you should, go out and vote this year, please. And uh, vote local, if nothing else. Vote local. Show up at the polls and vote. I think that's an excellent note, and we do have a uh, an election for mayor in this town, Petaluma, in November of 2014, and uh, of course you're the incumbent. Uh, your challenger, Mike Harris, will be on Tom and I's program in a couple weeks, and so, like Tom said, if you're listening out there, it might not be a bad idea to go and vote. Yeah, if you're an old Phoenix kid and you're over 18, son of a gun, get out there, register, and vote, for crying out loud. So, I mean, David, we truly appreciate you coming on and uh, talking a little bit about your history and your life and all that. And uh, my goodness, Tom, um, thank you as well. James, thank you. David, really, thank you so much. It's been an honor. No, thank you both. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we say good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Thank you.